Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? Look to your left, look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. So there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome to the Jill on Money Show. It is Saturday, July 23rd. And for this weekend, I I was a little lazy. Let me be honest. I was a guest on one of my colleagues' podcasts, and it went really well. So I said to Mark, let's air it on our program. So today and tomorrow, I am the guest on Major Garrett's program called The Takeout. It's a podcast, so you can subscribe to it where you find podcasts, and it's also on the CBS streaming service. So so lots of different ways that you can get this. But most importantly, uh, this was really fun for me because Major and I have known each other for a while. And in the first part of the interview, we're talking about the state of the U.S. economy and what the Federal Reserve is up to and the labor market. Here is the first part of my interview or Major Garrett's interview of me on his program called The Takeout. This week's show full of news you can use. Look, the number one story in America right now, and it's not even close, politically, economically, culturally, attitudinally, is inflation. And it's not close. And we've talked about it with a few of our guests who are in public policy arenas before, but this week we're going to talk about it and the state of the U.S. economy, what to think about it. And if you're an investor, some of you might be, what you might think about. We don't we don't dispense investment advice here. We never would try, but some ideas you might want to consider. That's as far as I'll go down that road. And we're going to do all of that, all of what I've just described with one of my closest and best friends at CBS, a great colleague, Jill Schlesinger, our CBS News business analyst. Jill, thanks so much for joining us. Well, it's great to be with you. And I want to be clear, I will actually dispense investment advice because I'm still a certified financial planner. Okay. So I'm happy to do that. <laughs> okay, good. You, it just won't come from me, ladies and Absolutely. gentlemen. Because that's just too dangerous for your uh, dim-witted uh, but ever-enthusiastic host. <laughs> All right, so Jill, um, help the audience understand just a couple of basic things. As you know, on the show, we love to break down terminology that everyone assumes everyone knows, but they might not know. So they hear things like 
inflation, and then they hear on television or they might read online, core inflation. Or they might hear something about this week, the producer price indexed. Help my audience understand, as you do on your own shows, Jill on Money and I on Money, what the terms are, which are the, which one is the most important, and which one you can sort of take to your mental bank. <laughs> well, first of all, the, you know, there's always a slew of economic reports that come out all the time, and you know, for as long as I have been in the either the money management business, a trader, and now working at CBS, you know, it was such a funny thing to talk about inflation because the way we used to talk about inflation was, oh my gosh, it's too low. In fact, I remember there was a time when. Ben Bernanke was a guest on our morning show, and I was asking him, like, what are we going to do to get prices rising faster? That was our big problem. (laughs) And uh, so it's just crazy how the world has turned around. So a few different ways to measure inflation, which is just the rate of increase of a bunch of goods and services in the U.S. economy. And uh, the big broad one is called the Consumer Price Index. And it's broken up into lots of different categories. But, you know, in the past, the problem has been when there has been a dislocation in one of the big commodities markets, like a food market, like it was wheat or oil. It would move the numbers around so much that the government has had started to say, well, wait a minute. Those are such volatile categories. Maybe we get a better measure of what's really going on by focusing on the rate of price increases for everything but those super volatile parts of the analysis. So the core, whenever we hear core, it just means you've stripped out food and energy because that way the, the, it wouldn't be so noisy. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're a normal human being, this is right. what you would think. <laughs> Let me just say that at this moment, you'd be like, right. Duh, Jill. But really, why would I strip out the things that matter the most to me? Right. That I buy all the time and have to buy all the time. Absolutely. So, again, one of the reasons is that those categories move around much more dramatically. And it doesn't mean that we don't focus on those items. It just means they're sort of treated slightly differently. And part of the reason is probably what we're going to see over the course of the next couple of months. For example, last month oil prices shot higher. And because the biggest portion of the price of a gallon of gasoline is derived from crude oil, prices at the pumps jumped. And so they went up and they soared. I think on June 14th, we reached a peak of over five bucks a barrel nationally. And now oil's reverse course and has gone down. So we've gone to near 120 bucks a barrel. Now we're at $90 a barrel. And that's going to impact the price of the pump. And that's good. You know, prices are down. Great. But in order to get a real feel on what's going on inside the economy, pulling those numbers out is actually helpful for the federal government, most importantly, Federal Reserve. So inflation, consumer price index at the consumer level. Producer price index is the price that producers or manufacturers have to pay. We care a little bit less about that. I mean, you care about that as an investor, because if producers are paying a lot of money for stuff, but they're not charging us, the consumer, as much, it usually means they're not going to make as much money. So their profitability or their margin will be reduced. All right. Now, take a deep breath, everyone. All right. Prices are higher. That's your big deal. Okay. We know that prices are higher. And I think the bigger question is, How quickly are prices going to actually come down if the Fed is starting to raise interest rates? And the answer is we don't know. Right. And 
to that point about a likelihood of the Federal Reserve raising interest rates yet again. There is a meeting coming up later this month in the month of July. There is now a conversation I see on the various financial networks and online. The Federal Reserve was considering 0.75. It could be a full point interest rate because of these latest inflation numbers. Could it be higher? And what are the implications of anything in that range? 0.75 to one or maybe higher? It will not be higher. I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to say it it will not go higher. I'm not sure it's going to be one. I I am. I feel that 0.75 is the most likely scenario. Um, Okay, the Federal Reserve. Let's peel this back a second. Right. The nation's central bank. uh, What's their job? They got three big, huge jobs. One job is to try to make sure that the economy is growing enough to create a job for anyone who really wants one. That's one part of their job. The other part of their job is what's called price stability. Prices aren't too low, deflation, or they're not too high, inflation. And the third part of their job is supervisory or regulatory. But if we look at those first two pieces, that's a pretty delicate balancing act. So the Fed is trying to use its tools to control how fast the economy grows, and that influences us as consumers, as businesses, and they do that by changing interest rates, short-term interest rates. So they've raised, they started to raise short-term interest rates back in March. Then they did it again in May and June, and they're going to go again in July. And I think the most likely scenario is 0.75%. The biggest problem with the way the Fed tries to use its tools is that they're kind of blunt instruments. Right. And that means that as they raise interest rates, It will likely slow the economy down, but it may take a while for it to filter through the economy. And that means that we're kind of stuck with these higher prices longer than anyone's going to feel comfortable having them stick around. Jill, as you well know, there's been sort of a recrimination factory built to heap criticism on the Federal Reserve for missing the underlying economics and allowing inflation if you read the criticism, and I have, to sort of gallop away from the U.S. economy, fair or unfair? Uh, I think both. Isn't that a nice little wedge (laughs) there? Um, Unfair early on, okay? Look, first of all, the Federal Reserve is people. It is human beings. And uh, I would like to, like I did this during the financial crisis, and I got killed by people when I said this. They're human beings doing doing the best they can in a very chaotic time. And so when we think about what was going on in COVID, the Federal Reserve was trying to look at the toolbox it had used it during the financial great financial crisis and the Great Recession. Look at what worked, look at what didn't work and try not to repeat some of the mistakes of 2008, 9 and 10. All right. And what they really were doing was they dropped interest rates very quickly. And at the same time, the one big difference was Back in 2008, 2009, you know where all the money went? It went to shore up the banks. Not a lot Correct. went to individuals. And I think the the administrations, both the Trump and the Biden administrations, were clear. We're not making that mistake again because people paid a huge price. And so they flooded this, the, the end zone with a lot of money, stimulus. And at the same time, the Fed was dropping rates down. So I think that that was all done with the best intentions. 
So about a year ago, maybe last spring of 2021, remember we were opening up and there was still some uncertainty, but there were um, a few early birds who said, wow, these prices are staying high and it's not just COVID related. It's not going away all too soon. And the, the head cheerleader from that camp was Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. And he was pretty spot on. I mean, he said, There's so much money going into the economy. Interest rates are so low. People are spending money in weird ways they haven't spent. There's a bottleneck on the good side. We have to start raising interest rates right now. And he was very early in that. And I think that a lot of economists I spoke to were like, yeah, let's see how the summer goes. And then we got to the fall. And then the fall, everyone was like, "Okay, Fed, time to change policy. And that was the moment I think the Fed had an opportunity to kind of get in front of this, but they did not. And again, human beings, uh, we are wildly influenced by cognitive biases. Same at the Federal Reserve. Their cognitive bias is something called recency bias. The thing that happened most recently impacts the way you're going to proceed today. And their most recent playbook was 2008-2009, where they were wildly criticized for actually starting to raise interest rates too quickly in that nascent recovery. And they didn't want to make that mistake again. And frankly, they waited too long, probably by six months. And that allowed inflation to bubble in and get baked in a little bit. You know, the big issue around inflation is not just high prices. It's our expectations of what those high prices will mean in the future. Exactly. And that's where I want to go to next, because I am, for the purposes of this show and my own life, a man of a certain age. Let me be specific. I'll be 60 next month. <gasps> what that means for the for the purpose of this conversation is I remember the 70s. I was alive. I watched my parents deal with inflation. I went to the supermarket with my mother every other week when we bought the family supply of groceries. And Jill, as I'm sure you can remember or you've read about because you're much younger than I am. <laughs> Canned goods would have these little stickers on the top of them, five or six layers deep. And the stickers were the new price applied by the clerks at the grocery stores. And that's how rapidly prices were going up. They needed a new sticker every three or four days. And you'd buy a canned good, like a can of peas or something, and there'd be like, I'm not kidding you folks, I remember it. Six or seven stickers indicating a higher price within the course of a week or a month. And that inflationary reality got baked into a whole set of expectations. And that's what made it, as I've read the history, persist. When people begin to make decisions on hiring, firing, changing jobs, shifting jobs, all sorts of things, if they believe they're living in a perpetually inflationary economy, they change their behavior. Are we there yet? Uh, I don't think so, but we're starting to get nervous about that for sure. Um, And those inflationary expectations are actually um, used by the Federal Reserve because they look at short, intermediate and long term expectations. And by the way, I totally remember that my mother was friends with a guy who owned the gas station in our town. And so when she had to fill up our Buick Electra Go look that one up, kids. That is a long car um, that we went at 930 at night and like snuck around the back. So I totally remember it. But it's interesting that you point that out about experience, because 
you know, we have a generation of people, think about this, anyone who is basically 45 years or younger has no experience with inflation. And so, uh, you know, the old farts like us, we do remember it and we kind of know how to term, ladies and gentlemen, exactly, you know, but like we understand what it means. We also understand it's not forever. You know, and I think the lesson of the 70s was that there was a prescriptive way to deal with inflation. It's painful and it will be painful now, but it will we will come to the other side of it. It's going to be interesting to see how a generation of people that has been living in a low inflationary environment uh, starts to take in this information and get to the other side of it. Are they going to be the kind of people who say, Oh, my gosh. Well, now I'll never be able to retire. Forget about the fire movement. Forget about financial independence. Retire early. I'm working forever because who knows where prices are going to be. So those expectations are um, are certainly being used by a lot of companies right now. Hey, it's not so much about inflation. It's about the prescription to fix inflation, higher interest rates along with change in consumer and business spending, a pulling back, a retrenchment, those two things argue for a big slowdown in economic growth. U.S. economy grew by five and a half percent last year, and we are going down from that. Whether we go negative, whether we have a contraction, whether it's long, whether it's steep, whether it's short, we don't know. We're slowing down and people are already changing their expectations and their plans as a result. Since we talked about the 70s, I should probably let the audience know 1980 was the year in which all of these were these bad numbers sort of converged. And let me give you some perspective on what that convergence actually looked like in the year 1980. Inflation was 14 percent in 1980. It is currently 9 percent over the most recent 12 months. Interest rates were 11 percent. In 1980, they are currently running at 5.1 to 5.3, depending on your lender. Unemployment in 1980 was 7.2% nationally. It is currently 3.4%. I'm not trying to tell you to not be unhappy or alarmed by the current economic statistics. I'm just saying they were worse at a different point in American history, and they were worse across more parts of our economy. Interest rates much higher. Inflation higher and importantly, unemployment much higher. So, Jill, what I want to ask you about now is what are we to think about a labor market that is not only with low unemployment, 3.4 percent, but if I have the numbers correctly, there are 11 million job openings. Yeah, I think the labor market is really curious right now. By the way, in 1980, I just looked it up. Number one song, Call Me by Blondie. And then number two, Another Brick in the Wall by Pink Floyd. I just want a little more context for everybody. It was a very strange musical time. Okay, it really was. So uh, when you look at the labor market, here's here's what we know. Uh, Job growth has really been strong this year, and it continues to be pretty good. We're downshifting, though. So we've had 2.74 million new jobs in the first six months of this year. We started out with about a half a million jobs a month for the first three months, then about 380,000 jobs a month for the next three months. So you see that already the trend is going lower. You're right. The unemployment rate, 3.6%. It's a tick above a 50-year low. So very, very strong labor market. But here's the curious head scratcher. If prices are up, And everyone's complaining about it. And we all are. Let's be honest. 
Why aren't more people getting back into the labor market while there are 11.3 million job openings? What's going on? A couple of theories. One, uh, people are fried. Okay, so you have the a slew of teachers, of healthcare workers, of frontline workers who just absolutely gave it their all for the last couple of years, and they are exhausted and they've left the labor force. Another idea. Well, a lot of people were finding that they couldn't get childcare amid the pandemic. And one of the parents stayed home because the childcare issue was really problematic. Maybe they figured out they can make it on one income, shockingly. And then there are a number of people who left the labor force, maybe go dipping in and out, changing jobs, making money, trying to figure out how to live their best lives. But you know what? They don't know where they're going next. So I think the labor market is one that suggests that it's strong enough right this second that the Fed has to keep going because they've got a lot of leeway there. There's a lot of slack in the labor market. Jill, are we in a different economic place post-pandemic? And has the pandemic shifted things in the foundations of our economy in ways that are likely to last? Well, it's definitely lasting. Um, I don't know if it's going to last two years, five years, or is this going to be a non-event? I'm always a little bit worried and um, cautious about saying this time is different because there aren't, I mean, except that it was a once in a century pandemic. Mm -hmm. You know, like if you could look at the financial crisis, it wasn't different than a lot of other financial panics that we've had. It's just that we don't have a lot of those that happen in the United States in such a big way. But a pandemic is different and it really did have a significant emotional impact on us. No. And I think that that's the part that we don't know yet. We don't and know when you how talk about when you talk about fried workers. It's evidence in this bureau. It's evidence. I as I gather it anecdotally from everyone I talk to in business, how employees want to come back, whether they want to come back the frequency at which they come back. All of these things are now live topics. They're real live jump balls in human resources, in in allocation of corporate resources. They're conversations that simply did not exist before. And it sounds like they're staying around. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, I started hearing this uh, early on in the pandemic when I, I had a podcast that was twice a week. We were inundated with so many questions that we went to a daily podcast and the Jill on Money audience was so uh, informed, informed and informed me. Um, and, And what I took away with it was that people were really trying to rethink their lives. Now, here's the really cool thing. I used all that information and I sold a book on it. And the name of the book is kind of and it will be out in January of 23, but it's called The Great Money Reset. And the reason that I chose that title was that every single one of these decisions that people were trying to consider about their real lives had some financial impact. And you had to know the numbers before you could make the big decision. So when we talk about one person staying home, the other one not. When we talk about people saying, you know what? I am out of the daily news grind. I need to find a different path. When we talk about that people learn during that COVID crisis, I don't need that much. I may want it, but I don't need it. Now, the flip side of that is that 
of course, we're human beings and we're sort of hedonists also. So, you know, we were cooped up for two years and yeah, I may not have needed it, but I'm going to pay 35% more for an airline ticket because I have right. got to go away with my family. So we are living history. The, the We don't know what whether these things will be long lasting. And I would say that if any this, if anything is like the big message to me from the pandemic, it's that when we have to batten down the hatches, we can. But we don't really like to do that. And that's what we're learning on the flip side of it. Well, thanks for listening. We'll air the second part of this interview tomorrow. If you've got a financial question or something tickles your fancy from this program that maybe conjures up a question for you, or it's just a plain old financial question, just go to jillonmoney.com, click on the Contact Us button, and we will get your note. Check the box if you want to come on the air, and then Mark will do everything else. Lift someone up today. Thank you so much for listening. Grit, growth, grace. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Do you know a high schooler who is a natural leader and loves to give back to their community? The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society's Student Visionaries of the Year program might be the perfect opportunity forming strong teams to support them. Student Visionaries of the Year candidates fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor in their local community. This seven-week philanthropic leadership development program helps students gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Not to mention, it looks great on college applications. But most importantly, it's a chance for students to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org students.